Hello and welcome to The Wax Show. I will be your host today. My name is Dan and today with me I have... It, is it Am I next? Is it Matt? Is it me? It's you. And me. TJ. Woo! Alright. And today we're going to continue our very long history lesson on the world of Galarian. A wonderful fantasy tabletop RPG world created by the folks at Pathfinder, Paizo, whatever you want to call them. Uh, that's been being built and developed for years and years and years now and has recently entered its second phase of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. For those of you who know very little about this, I'm trying to keep things dumbed down to relative interesting fantasy story levels. Uh, for those who are D&D fanatics may be interested in learning about what Pathfinder's story and what its world is like, uh, I will try to draw parallels as well. But this is the second in an installment of potentially two to three episodes uh, of a long-form topic. And uh, we are doing this based on adventure paths, which are pre-written grand campaigns that typically take characters from the lowly startings of level one all the way up to level 13, 17, 20, and one or two cases. So these are very grand adventures done over typically six books of individual content tying together a very long-running story with plot threads and characters and so on and so forth. So if you haven't watched the first one, what I'm saying is a little bit of this might not make sense, but most of it should if you're just interested in general fantasy plots and stories. But um, And we all are. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not going to spend too much time recapping what was already said. The next ep or the last episode should be right above or below this one or to the left or right, depending on what platform you're using. Um, so if something brought you to this one before you've heard the first one, go check that one out um, or just strap in for some crazy plot threads and character names and all kinds of other wackadoo stuff. Um, I'm going to be going over the general vague plots for various APs. If you are in the middle of playing one, you may want to skip over it or mute the section or something like that. Uh, if you're about to start playing one, be aware. Basically what I'm saying is I'm not going to do spoiler tags for this because the whole damn episode's a spoiler if you care. Um, but anyway, without further ado, unless either of you have some critical questions based on notes or vague things you remember from the last episode to start off, I will jump right into where we left off, which was the AP Kingmaker by Paizo, which was published and released in February of 2010. Yeah, I'm good. Get it. Okay. So Kingmaker was actually a really interesting AP um, because it was a step away from the standard form of adventure paths up until now. What I mean by that is very much uh, the adventure paths up until now have been uh, linear kind of this is the plot. These are the events the party needs to go through. Uh, and for the most part, that's typically what pre-made adventures and APs are. Um, you're welcome to fluff it out with whatever content you have or use it as a starting point for other uh, stories for your party to branch off of. But if you're sitting down to just play the AP, there's really one main path to go down. Kingmaker is different in that it was the first sandbox adventure path. The premise, the entire premise of the campaign was the party is given a quest to go explore a section of this place called the Stolen Lands. 
uh, in a country known as the River Kingdoms. It's called the Stolen Lands because the wilderness and the bandits have essentially made this place inhospitable, untamable, uncontrollable for years and years and years. You start the campaign by being given a quest to change this, basically. Um, and those who manage to set a foothold in there will become landowners, and you would get to start your own kingdom, essentially. Uh, and that is exactly what the party is expected to do. So they built an entire system of building, running, managing um, a kingdom for this campaign. The initial construction of this system was spotty at best. Um, they also created a basically like a, a war system, which comically enough, where everything spawned from D&D used to start as a fantasy war versus war tabletop system or army versus army. That's the words I'm looking for. Tabletop system. So you'd have units of clerics and units of fighters and units of rangers. And then eventually got boiled down into the RPG that we know and love now, where it's individual characters representing these types of fighters and combatants. And they're doing a more tied storyline instead of just throwing forces at each other, like, say, Warhammer tabletop. Um, so Kingmaker supported both these components. Um, and the first kind of book, book and a half, was fairly railroady. There were specific events that the party needed to go and explore within a region of the Stolen Lands. Eventually, they would be driven to take down the bandit leader in this kind of vertical strip of the lands, who kind of had control over what was happening in the area. And after they defeated that, they would be able to lay the groundwork for their kingdom. And there's actually significant time skips canonically in this campaign to allow for the growth of a kingdom, because that's not something that happens over days. Um, they did add and try to include uh, a more grandiose storyline, which I think is actually a drawback to this campaign, because um, a lot of times, from what I understand, the players would get to the kingdom building, they'd get involved in it, they'd get invested in their kingdom, they'd get invested in who they put in charge of the kingdom for different components, things like that. A lot of times the characters themselves wanted to be those political and military leaders and things like that, which is really hard to justify when you have this grandiose plot of some kind of evil fae being upset that humans are taking over the natural land and trying to strike back kind of thing. Um... And it, it's weird because you have these two overshadowed conflicting things. But ultimately, from the grand scheme of things for Galarian history, uh, Kingmaker is kind of a question mark in various people's takes on the world of Galarian and how it is today. Because if your party or if your common set of people who play at the table built a kingdom there, then is that kingdom there in future games? Mm -hmm. Do you just kind of white out over it kind of thing and is the stolen land still savage or has it been tamed and to what degree kind of thing so it's a it's a nice blank slate for future campaigns for example uh matt's in that i'm running a a homebrew 2e pathfinder 2e campaign that canonically is set uh during the time of basically right now in the pathfinder universe so all of the first edition ap's have happened canonically um, to include the events that happened in the ones that the party has played. Which we did uh, the first book, essentially, of Kingmaker before we kind of put a close on that one for various real-life reasons. 
and they did manage to establish the beginnings of a nation. Uh, so where we are canonically in our current homebrew campaign, that kingdom would have had several years to grow. It wouldn't be a bustling, you know, world stretching known power. But if they go there, I need to be prepared to explain to them how the kingdom has grown and what's changed and what's happened. Things like that. So where's my character? Yeah. So different tables are going to have different experiences accounting for the events of Kingmaker, which is kind of weird. But as a DM, it's nice to have that freedom to do what you want with that. I think that's really cool. It's also like if you didn't do that part or if you don't want to worry about that part, you just say, oh, that's kind of where all the bandits go. It's lawless. The, the, the attempt failed. Yeah, and that's the other nice thing about the AP. It has this, grand, like, air quotes, grandiose arc across the six books that the characters are expected to investigate, counter, and stop. But simultaneously, if they don't, or if they didn't, or if you don't have a plot for the events of this and it affects what your characters do in your homebrew campaign, you can simply just say either A, it hasn't happened yet, or B, it's happened and it's just more wild. The events of the campaign don't directly impact the machinations of the greater world at large. Very much, at the very least. I guess one question I have about it. Um, is, the, is the time skip variant depending on the campaign that you're in? Um, most of the APs are designed to take place in real life and canonically over the course of roughly a year to a year and a half. Kingmaker is different in that you do multi-year jumps to account for growth in a kingdom, which is why it kind of also messes with the concept of the canonical timeline, which is kind of weird. You kind of just have to hand wave it and ride with it um, in some instances. But ultimately, I think Paizo made the right call in making sure it didn't have too many world-changing events because it wasn't concrete in time. That makes sense. I was wondering, because I thought of a cool idea that could be a part of it, but I'll say it later. Gotcha. Um, moving on to the next one, that is Serpent Skull from August 2010. I actually don't know very much about this one. Um, reading a, a small blurb about it, I actually kind of want to read it. Uh, unfortunately, most of my group does not want to play Pathfinder 1E anymore. Um, nothing against the system, it's just very number crunchy, and folks are coming around to liking Pathfinder 2e. So, that's kind of what we're transitioning to, which means if I want to play any old content, I have to be ready to convert the entire fucking AP. Well, that's one other thing to note about Kingmaker, is they will be bringing Kingmaker into 2nd edition. So there will be an official publish in 2e of Kingmaker, if you still want to have that kingdom building experience in the modern system. But anyway... Is that the only one they said they're doing, or was it was it like several? But that's the only one they confirmed. Or uh, there's a crowdfunding campaign to make it happen. Okay. Um, and that's that's why it's confirmed. They have not confirmed making any other campaigns into two E. So King Kingmaker is pretty highly liked. What I'm guessing. Um, it's it's very attractive. Uh, I don't think it's the best written AP, but it is a it is a unique AP in that none of the others are designed with the intent of building your own kingdom, which is something very different from your average tabletop system and tabletop night and things like that. Uh, it's, it's a bit more of a macro level focused campaign. So a lot of people are eventually one way or another pulled to considering it 
They also made a video game of it, which I will keep my opinions of to myself. Um, but that is out there <laughs> in existence, should you want or not want to do that. Just, Boy. I would simply state, don't let it construe your understanding and opinion of tabletop RPGs, if you play it is it is not a tabletop RPG. It attempts to be one, but it is not. Just bear <laughs> that in mind. Um, but yeah, Serpent Skull. That's the next one. Um, I don't know too much about it. This actually explores some of the ancient history of Galarian, specifically uh, one of the ancient races of Galarian that's kind of gone underground and uh, hidden in the Underdark, more or less, uh, known as Serpent Folk which is exactly what they sound like. It's snake people. Basically, the party um, party of adventurers, from what I can tell, they're shipwrecked and they get pulled into this race to find an ancient lost city deep underneath the Mwangi Expanse, which is kind of the Pathfinder Congo, Amazon jungle style thing. And they start encountering this ancient race of serpent folk and learn a lot of history about Galarian and what the serpent folk were responsible for in history and what they do now and things like that. Um, this is very much flushing out ancient history of Galarian. Uh, you probably thwart some kind of grand plan for their rise to power and recovery of their empire, which technically speaking would be impactful in the grand scheme of the, the canonical world, but provided the party is successful or is assumed successful, no one would know. Uh, and it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a major footnote. Uh, Matt, you mentioned you had a question. Uh, are these UNT or are these dif different? Uh, UNT is uh, copyrighted by Dungeons and Dragons Wizards of the Coast, so these are definitely not UNT, but they are Winky Face, not UNT. Okay, that is that. Yep. Okay, that's exactly what I wanted. To <laughs> I was like, is there a reason there's snake people? Does Does Glarian have two kinds of snake people? No, similar to Beholders and a couple other things like Displacer Beast, stuff like that. Those are copywritten by Dungeons & Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, yada, yada, yada. Like uh, uh, like your favorite metal in mine, Mithril. Mithril, Mithril. <laughs> Mithril. Mithril. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so this is... It, every once in a while there will be an AP like this where it its pretty much sole purpose is to give writers an excuse to make a cool dungeon series and plot that lets them flush out uh ancient points in the history of galarian that are, are maybe really cool but they don't have another excuse to explore and flush out so that's serpent skull um i again i honestly don't know much about that one i couldn't even give spoilers if i wanted to <laughs> um which to me that would indicate that that one doesn't have a huge impact on the plot lines of Galarian as a whole. Um, I feel like I've been attracted to and at least looked into most that have major impacts. Uh, such as the next one, which I ran about half of, called Carrion Crown in February of 2011. Carrion Crown is very interesting. It's an undead-themed campaign taking place in the country of Ustalov, which is basically um, studious Transylvania kind of thing <laughs> yeah you've got necromancers and vampires and werewolves and the whole jazz and you're damn right that they're highlighted in this campaign the entire premise of carrion crown 
is uh, the party goes to pay their respects to a, a lost dear friend of theirs or, or an acquaintance or a teacher back in the day, something like that. There's an NPC. You choose a campaign trait to tie your character to this NPC in some way. And you go to this sleepy little town in the southwestern portion of Ustalov to pay your respects at his funeral. And one of the things uh, that happens is... I believe it's his daughter or his student or someone close to him basically reaches out to you at the funeral and says, Hey, uh, I'm really glad you came. He mentioned uh, if you were to show up, he had one final request of you. And that's to take this book to this person in um, one of the major cities to the north of Ustalov, not the capital. Uh, Lepid Lepidstad is the name of the city. Which is kind of weird, because some of these characters weren't really involved with this person. It was kind of like a passing acquaintance. Strange that he would ask them to do that. Um, but the plot of the first book, basically, they accept the, the longer quest to essentially do this delivery, but they start getting tied up in this strange occult weirdness that begins to erupt in and around the town. And they they start to learn that the death of their their acquaintance here was not as clear-cut as it seems. They uncover that he was actually murdered instead of simply dying due to an accident. Um, and the spirits of this kind of Supermax-style jail on the hill um, start running amok. Uh, people in town start getting possessed and committing murders and causing problems, things like that. And book one is the party venturing into this this ancient, decrepit, no longer used prison and trying to stop this eruption of occult spiritual energy um, that re uh, threatens to destroy this small, sleepy town in Ustalov. Um, it's very much go into the jail, try to do some things, realize that you're outclassed or, or you know, you're level one to two at this point. You need to leave and run away and recover and prepare and then go back in and deal with these, like, ethereal haunting events and stuff like that it's very like moody very setting driven which is really cool um but eventually the party succeeds in that but finds out that there are some threads to something greater happening uh nothing telling in book one but the end of book one is basically starting your travel north book two takes place in Leopardstad. um you arrive in the city and it's essentially the trial of Frankenstein, which is really, really cool. Basically, there's this sentient monster called the Beast of Lepidstad that has finally been captured. And as you arrive, uh, it looks like preparations are being made to burn him inside a giant wicker man. Um, as you deliver your book, it turns out you're delivering it to the high judge of the court of Lepidstad, uh, who you discover by the end of this book is part of a secret organization that they and your acquaintance friend belong to called the um, Esoteric Order of the Palantine Eye. Uh, quite the name, I know. Uh, <laughs> but they essentially send you on a quest and admit to you that they don't believe this beast of Lepidstad is responsible for the murders and public property damage and things that the rioters are so up in arms about. Um... Long story short, you go through this whole investigative phase where you find out something was stolen from the university in Lepidstad, and they believe, and after the party's investigation, all signs point to the beast, i.e. Frankenstein, doing the robbery. 
Um, but the beast doesn't seem to remember anything of it. Uh, so you actually have this moment where you are in court as the party fighting for the Frankenstein monster. Like he was used, he didn't do this. And there's like this whole, you, you literally get to be lawyers, like in a movie fighting for the rights of Frankenstein. <laughs> and it's just so wild. It's like, where the hell did this go? <laughs> That's cool. That's funny. Yeah. Um, but the the book kind of middles out and then ends with that. The middle portion is finding proof that the beast was being manipulated into doing this. And you have to go to Schloss, which is an olden term for a fort or a castle on a hill or mountain. Uh, Schloss Karamark, which you find out was recently raided and pillaged and attacked in one way or another. Uh, its inhabitants have been killed. Traps have been set in the wake of whatever has attacked this place, and they seem to come here looking for something specific. So as you fight your way through this extremely difficult dungeon that basically almost... I think it did TPK the party. Um, TPK means total... Uh, or team player kill or total player kill, something like that. Basically, total party kill. Yeah, it killed the whole party, essentially. Which, by <laughs> the way, when I ran it, also in book one... There was almost one of those on the final boss. In book two, it actually happened, uh, but I gave them uh, kind of a, a bone thrown at them to, to give them a break because they they successfully saved the Beast of Lepidstad in the courtroom um, or, or bought him time or whatever. I don't remember the exact order of events, but basically he was available to kind of drag them out of where they had been knocked unconscious uh, in in the castle Um and they were able to kind of pick themselves up and reattempt it. Um, but you fight through this castle, through all these traps that were left behind by this organization that the party doesn't know about at the time. And lo and behold, at the very top, after some really tough fights, there's this crazy Frankenstein-style lightning rod that was used to bring life to these creations. And there was actually a control mechanism so you could directly take control of the beast. And that was the evidence you needed to confirm he 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 was free essentially um and and to wrap up the kind of theft plot an ancient object some kind of artifact that was on display in the museum at the uh college in this city uh the university uh is something called the sea sage effigy which is this weird little green tentacled effigy like jade mineral stone thing and it was stolen so you find out technically the beast did it, but he was being mind controlled and manipulated by somebody or something. Taking us to book three, which I'll try to speed along here. Book three, um, again, Judge Deramede was her name. Uh, she's the person you delivered the book to, the Order of the Palatine Eye member. She gives you the opportunity to join the secret organization, should you be interested. Um, and she kind of gives you a suggestion as to who has been doing this, which you find out to be um, this cult, essentially, called the Whispering Way. There have been hints of, of these people throughout the first two books here. Um, but the Cult of the Whispering Way is a semi-secret organization that worships a being known as the Whispering Tyrant, whose name is Tarbafon. And he is kind of like this demigod-like, undead, powerful wizard that in years past, like uh, centuries past or something along those lines, almost, he's kind of like Genghis Khan. He basically almost took over the known northern world in the region 
uh, but was eventually fought back by deities and their harbingers and things like that. And the, the Whispering Way is up to no good. They're trying to do something. Uh, the puzzle pieces don't quite fit yet, but it's suspected that uh, there's a lead. So you chase this lead, which leads you into this spooky forest that's in this northern reaches of Ustalov, where you get wound up and tied up in this werewolf war that you didn't even know was going on. <laughs> yeah, it gets wild. But basically, you, you're you staying at this place called Askinor Lodge, which is this hunting lodge with these very socially intertwined NPCs who are all staying there on a hunting trip when basically only one of them is even there to be hunting. It's like a weird vacation spot. But you find out that the owner of the Askinor Lodge is uh, in cahoots with a one of the less uh, well-inclined werewolf clans they worship a, a, a demon lord um so obviously them having control of the region is not good um so you end up helping stop this war uh putting down the the kind of secret agent that's been uh tipping the scales so on and so forth and by the end of it you also discover that indeed the whispering way did go through here uh and in fact the evil werewolf clan is being used by the whispering way for their nefarious plots and the book ends with this huge siege on this town where you finally find them. There's this huge unit from the Whispering Way, and this town uh, has been abandoned for, for decades, and everyone in it died in this huge tragedy. So they're just raising them as undead, creating this huge army of undead as their leader, unbeknownst to you until the end, is working on putting together pieces of something that at the end of the campaign, you discover is meant to free the Whispering Tyrant from his eternal prison and bring him back to the material realm, yada yada, so on and so forth. And the rest of the campaign deals with the Sea Sage Effigy and all these different little pieces that all the way back from book one, the Whispering Way has been manipulating to create this extremely powerful elixir and conduct this ritual at the Gallowspire which is this giant tower where the where Tarbifon is imprisoned to free him. And it ends with this huge battle in the Gallowspire where the leader of the Whispering Way becomes this aspect of Tarbifon. Basically, Tarbifon takes over his body and is, is semi-present within him. And you have this huge battle with this lich, kind of Saruman Gandalf style on top of this tower kind of deal. And there's undead running at you and this huge fight. And eventually you bring him down and stop the, the return of, of the Lich King of Galarian, basically. And that that's, just sounds like a blast. <laughs> yeah, and that's Carrion Crown. <laughs> All right. I would be remiss if I didn't document the fact that I don't even remember the exact reason, but somebody had to leave and I joined in like book three at level, what, 10 or something? I believe, no, not level 10. The campaign ended at 13. I think it was around seven or eight, six, seven or eight. And we wanted to add another person because one of our members was not very good at attendance. So we okay. wanted to still be able to play even if one person couldn't show up. Yeah. So I joined at level eight with my first caster character I'd ever made. I made a sorcerer. Died my first session. Yeah. Yeah. I killed, <laughs> I killed Matt as soon as he joined. <laughs> like, I joined was uh, the biggest 
fuckery ever of like black tentacles you're paralyzed get fucked can't do anything now you're dead get you fuck you yeah for for reference the the leader of Askinor Lodge the owner who was serving the the demon lord following werewolves uh escaped after the party finally finally figured out it was him holy god it was really fun and the RP was awesome, but we spent like four sessions doing the lodge investigation. It was slow, but the party had a great time. <laughs> the whole point of this AP, and I told them this when I started, is I want this to be at your guys' pace. I don't want to push you into anything. Because I've, I've, I've been, over the past couple years, I've been trying to lean into that DM style of like, because APs are so railroady, and the DM's got a, a lot of times the DM ends up going, well, that's actually not written, so I can't I can't take you down that path. Mm-hmm. So, some DMs will be like, okay, we're straying from the adventure path. Eventually, I'll get it back in front of you, but I need to write some content. I didn't have the time to write all that content, slash the interest at the time to add on content to someone else's pre-written shit. So that happened periodically. A lot of DMs in our group run into that. With this one, I didn't want that to happen. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to let them choose their path. And if I have to write content, I will. And so a lot of times it was me sitting there hands off, listening to their conversations, RPing with them, trying to lead them in the right direction. This is a very interesting um, change. But basically, the leader of Asklenor Lodge was secretly a spellcaster, escaped with a kind of a teleport style spell. After he was found out, they chased him to where the final battle with the werewolf people would happen. And they found him hiding in this room through a crack in the wall. And he he dropped a sickening gas on the party, teleported out of the room. So they had to sidle their way out of the crack in the wall to chase him. To which he put a web spell down in the hallway, slowing them. And he backed up and got the high ground, and then he dropped a spell called Black Tentacles, which creates giant black tentacles that will grab you and throw you around and hit you and grapple you. So they had to go through the choking gas, climb through the webs, get past the black tentacles to reach the caster, who, by the way, was throwing fireballs at them at this point. (laughs) (laughs) It was way more lethal than I thought it would be, but I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, that's Carrion Crown. It's actually really cool. If you choose to run it as a DM or if you choose to play in it, really lean into the setting. Um, the, The atmosphere of it being this kind of spooky, classical, gothic horror piece is is really cool. That's its selling point. It's awesome. Um, all right, rolling through the next couple fairly quickly here. Uh, Jade Regent, I did play through over the course of like three plus fucking years. It was, it was a slow campaign because, uh, there was attendance issues again. Um, but basically this is reuniting with some NPCs from Rise of the Rune Lords and then going to Galarian Asia and unseating the evil emperor and putting the true heir back on the throne. Uh, as such, it doesn't impact the Inner Sea region, which is where most of Pathfinder's primarily concerned story and plot is happening. 
for all the APs, and that's where most of the information for the setting is. That's where most people play. Uh, so this didn't have a huge impact on the portion of the world that we're actually concerned about. Um, it had some fun moments. It had some not so great moments. I would I would use caution with Jade Regent. I would say be very prepared to write off large sections of the AP and or rewrite large sections of it. But you basically go from Verizia, which is like the Europe, Western European nations, over the crown of the world, which is the North Pole style thing. So basically you're going up and through kind of Northern Russia and Finland and that kind of cultural region. And then down into Asia. Um, is is the kind of concept that occurs so you have this middle chunk with vikings and dealing with the cold and then you have this end chunk where you're dealing with the eastern cultures and um the oni and stuff like that it's conceptually it's interesting the biggest problem with this ap is the main character is not the players the main character is an npc who they're trying to put on the throne of tianjia is the name of their asian so it's okay be prepared for some frustrations from the players be prepared to rewrite some stuff but that's jade region uh skulls and shackles is the next one this is your classic pirate adventure path i played a little bit of it with matt here as the dm um the opening is terrible uh, you literally start as a prisoner on a pirate ship for, what is it? It says like 30 days. It's like 15, but uh, basically they they write out a script for you to exactly what the crew of the ship does to the prisoner forced slave pirate PCs for like two weeks. And after that point, where you're treating the PCs, where according to the AP, if you're doing what the AP wants, you're treating the PCs horribly. Uh, somebody near the end of that is supposed to come up and be like, hey, we should mutiny. When the PCs want nothing more than to mutiny way before that. And this is my first DMing experience, so if I had been a more uh, adjusted DM, I would have changed things. But the AP's beginning itself written the way it is is bad. Yeah, if you have not DM'd before, do not start with Skulls and Shackles. I wish yes. I had known that and <laughs> warned Matt. He did the best he could with the content he had as a new GM. Um, and after we got over that first hump, it was actually really fun. I got to play my my pirate queen sorceress, Yara. Um, she, she, was, she was feisty. It was really fun to get to play her. So... Um, if you can get past the opening, or if you can find a clever way to adjust the opening to be less frustrating for the players, there's a lot of really fun RP, because who the fuck doesn't want to be a pirate? Like, come on! The AP... I would say, that, that's, that's like one of my top ones that I've heard so far that I would want to start with. Yeah, uh, the you whole just hear point pirates of... and you're like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. The whole point of the AP is to allow you to command your own pirate fleet and battle rival pirates for loot and stuff like that. To my understanding, there is an overarching story that, again, ends around level 13. It has to do with some kind of artifact blade of the sea and discovering some kind of lost treasure or lost ship lore or some ghost um, ship lore or something like that. In 
Galarian right next to the shackles, which is all the little island areas that pirates like to hang out at. There is a giant eternal hurricane called the Eye of a Bendigo. Yes. And the AP touches on what the fuck is that? And what are some of the things history-wise that have happened with that? And possibly what's in the middle of it? Just to seed that shit for Dan. Yeah, and, and from my understanding... There's actually a flying city of an ancient race in the center of the the maelstrom as well, um, but that's that hasn't been confirmed by Paizo to my knowledge. But anyway, skulls and shackles. If you can get past the opening to it, which by the way, if you do play it, do not ask about the Naga in the first pirate town you go to. They didn't write anything about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> no. So like you ha- you once you steal the ship, you basically go and you you have to do a thing called. Uh, like changing the lines or something which makes the ship look different even though it's not different and while the pcs are stuck there for like two weeks again nagas keep attacking the town so obviously the pcs are like oh we can help the town and stop these nagas and ingratiate the guys that change ships to us no you can't they didn't write that part (laughs) (laughs) so the pcs were like all right well tomorrow we should go do the naga thing and i just had to be like there's no Naga thing, guys. Don't do that, please. Yeah, that, another <laughs> perfect example of that isn't written, and I don't have the time in real life to write a whole Naga arc, and I don't know to, how to account for the experience that you would earn for that later kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so that's Skulls and Shackles. Again, it's it's very Serpent Skull-esque, uh, Kingmaker-esque, where it doesn't have an enormous impact on the main story of the world, I don't believe, but it is... It's interesting and it's fun. Um, then the next AP has an absolutely huge impact. This is the second piece of the Rune Lord's plotline called Shattered Star. So Shattered Star is the the confirmed straight sequel to uh, Rise of the Rune Lords, which was the first AP. It incorporates elements of Curse of the Crimson Throne and Second Darkness, interestingly enough. Um, and... You're actually, funnily enough, so in Pathfinder, there's a, an organization called Pathfinder Society, which is all about exploring the world, battling, um, you know, the evils and in, in various forces of the world and trying to, you know, increase the power of mortals and, and know more about this crazy magical chaos ball that you find yourself on. Um, this one actually has you start as agents of the Pathfinder Society. Um, and you learn about uh, a fragmented artifact scattered throughout the old lands of Galarian. It falls on you to gather up these seven fragments with some classic dungeon crawling, basically. Um, for those who are old school D&D nerds, this is basically Pathfinder's version of the Rod of Seven Parts, dumbed down to a single adventure path. Um, for you two, who may have... Matt, you may have heard me mention the Rod of Seven Parts before. Uh, it came up with the lenses, because John thought that's what you're... The Rod of Seven Parts was a D&D first edition gargantuan campaign. It was this long, overarching story that was pieced together. Um, a lot of it was the DM needs to fill these pieces in, but here, here's like... Here's where what the plot is. Here's all the details, so on and so forth. This is where your players need to go as a roadmap. 
you make the specifics. And that was a lot of what original D&D was. Um, the Rod of Seven Parts was an ancient lawful artifact, and each piece of the rod belonged to one of the schools of magic. And when you brought it together, it created this powerful staff that was used to defeat Orcus, I think? Some kind of super evil bad guy. Um, ironically enough, Paizo flipped it on its head, and the Shattered Star is a seven-piece artifact that belonged to the Sin Lords of, of Rune Magic, the Rune Lords. Um, and I believe through this, you collect the different pieces and actually go through and potentially awaken, or at least learn a shit ton about the Rune Lords, what their culture was like, who they were, um, in some cases, where some of them are now. Um, I believe the Shattered Star deals a lot with uh, the Rune Lord of Pride, if I'm remembering correctly. Which becomes very important, because this is... I will spoiler this one. I will give a spoiler tag for this one. This is a massive fucking spoiler if you are still playing through Pathfinder 1 content. So I'll give you a moment. Count to ten, starting now. The Rune Lord of Pride is actually a small deity known as the Peacock Spirit, which is extremely important in the series of APs regarding the Rune Lords. End spoiler. Okay. Um, but it deals with the Rune Lord of Pride, um, from my understanding, and kind of exploring that and what this artifact is for, uh, and where some of the Rune Lords are currently in modern day, which becomes very important later on. Um, so remember that. But I have not played through it. This is one where I might put the work in to convert it to 2e. Um, because the, like, the Rune Lord storyline is the main fucking storyline for the APs. Everything else is side or adjacent or a different plot line. This is like one of two primary driving forces within APs developing the world for reference. Uh, next, we have Reign of Winter, which is a essentially the story of Baba Yaga in Galarian. Yes, Baba Yaga is a multiverse traveling witch. You're welcome. I, I know I just made your day. Bob's yoga. <laughs> Yes, Bob's Yoga. Um, so a little bit of background. So the witches of Galarian have their own country um, called Irisin. It's in the north. It's frozen. Uh, it's this winter landscape. Hence the, the campaign name Reign of Winter. Uh, Baba Yaga once showed up. This used to be controlled by um, the Viking lands people who... Uh, it's called the Lands of the Lenorn Kings. They're rough-and-tumble Vikings who fight these ancient fey-based dragons that curse you when you kill them. Um, used to be controlled by the Vikings of the Lands of Le the Lenorn Kings, as well as um, partially by the, essentially, caveman people of the Realm of the Mammoth Lords to the right. So Irisin is the chunk in between those two countries now. Basically, what happened is Baba Yaga showed up on Galarian gathered up forces of these fey monstrosities. And when I say fey, I mean like fairies and crazy animalistic creatures and, and you know, certain types of giants and things like that. Um, she gathered this horde of monsters and her brood of daughter witches. And over the course of, I think it was a couple months, 
wrested control. It might have even been like 20 days or something. She wrested control of this enormous region and created a country for her daughters, her witch daughters. And the creature, she gave parts of it to the fey creatures that helped her do this. And then she left, leaving her daughters in control. And every hundred years, she comes back and takes the daughter that's been in control of Irisen, and they disappear. And the next daughter takes over. In Reign of Winter, the current leader of Irisen is Witch Queen Elvana, who has been in power almost a hundred years. And she's not exactly a fan of the idea of mommy coming and taking her away to who knows where. So it is her doing things in Irisen to prepare to stop her mother from taking her. And you as the adventurers are there to make sure the Witch Queen Elvana gets taken the fuck away because she is bad for all of Galarian. Especially for Irisen. <laughs> and this AP, I don't know much about it. One of our friends is planning to convert it and run it. So I have not done a lot of research, but he himself has told me, I believe book five is something along the lines of Rasputin must die. You literally dimension jump to the real world and kill Rasputin during the real world <laughs> world war. It is fucking weird, but so cool. <laughs> That's interesting. That or he comes to Galarian, one of the two, I don't know. But like, the AP literally lines up with real-world years of the World War. If, uh, That's cool. If you don't want to say name, you could just give me initials. Uh, who's doing that? Epsilation. Okay. He has talked about it. Shit. But he's, he's been busy lately, so. Yeah, he has. Oh. And I know he wants to do something outside of Pathfinder before he does something inside of Pathfinder again. Yeah. Um... Does that mean that there's been good witches, then? I was yeah. one of the history. Okay. Yeah, you can play as a witch. Not all witches... All witches are tied to Baba Yaga by some long lineage. Uh, she she is the source of witches, basically. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're still their own people. They can choose what they want to do with their lives. Uh, as with most intelligent creatures in Pathfinder, there's a problem I have with both D&D and Pathfinder... And my brother shares this feeling. Um, not to jump away from witches, but it's essentially the same premise. But witches are allowed to do it. In a lot of modern fantasy settings, you have two types of dragons. You have chromatic dragons and metallic dragons. Chromatic dragons are your red dragon, blue dragon, black dragon, green dragon, your flat color dragons. Metallic mm -hmm. dragons are gold, silver, brass, bronze, all the metals. metals. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious... Because I, I know where this is going. Uh, TJ, all of one of them is evil and all of one of them is good. Which one do you think is which? I'm curious what TJ would guess. I would guess that the metal dragons are good and the chromas are bad. There you go. Which is the dumbest shit ever because dragons are some of the smartest, most ancient creatures on the surface of any fucking fantasy world. Yeah, <laughs> so right. why the hell does the color of their scales determine their alignment? There's been some shift away from this. And in Homebrew, ultimately, you have the control. In Pathfinder specifically, uh, this actually has to do with some 2E campaign stuff. Um, but there is an evil gold dragon because of choices he has made. Um, 
in any homebrew campaign John and I run, we typically make it a very clear point that the color of a dragon does not determine the alignment of a dragon. They are intelligent enough to make their own fucking decisions. Yeah, that's how it should be. That's a weird... <laughs> that is weird. But yeah, same premise for witches. Witches are intelligent humanoid creatures nine times out of ten. They can make their own decisions what to do with their power. It's just... The, wit, the word witch has a negative connotation because of the whole Salem witch hunts and all that jazz. In in a fantasy setting, it is a class that confers a set of skills and magical abilities. Period. I should have I should have been more specific with my question. I meant the daughters that take over. Some of them are oh, good within the history. Uh, of the no, the entirety of Irisin is an evil country. They, okay, so they they're work, always bad. Okay. Yeah, for reference, they work in a caste system. The giant fey monstrosity animals are a higher caste than the humans working and keeping the country running. And most They're of those evil. humans are slaves. Yes, slave Vikings taken from uh, the Lenorm kingdoms and or the realm of the Manathors. So Irisin in general is a bad place with bad people. Uh, and then there's the slave caste where they're just kind of fucking boned. <laughs> yeah, but that's Reign of Winter. Um, ugh. There's so much. There's so much to go over. I'm sorry. This might go to a three episode thing, um, but we're we're getting to some stuff I can go over more quickly. Uh, the next AP is Wrath of the Righteous. I could oh, spend an shit. hour on this one alone. We just finished this one fairly recently in the last couple months. This is the first AP Paizo wrote to take characters from level one to twenty and use their uh, alternative rule set called Mythic Campaigns, where basically you become demigods or heralds of gods and you get these crazy powers the system mechanically is dog shit and totally imbalanced but holy fuck was it fun to play through if you have a good gm oh my god according to our gm a lot of the plot points needed to be rewritten they were kind of poorly structured some of them didn't really feel like they would fit to the party that you would expect to have but the general premise is you're in a, a portion of the world known as the World Wound. It used to be a country in ancient times known as Sarkoris, um, but a rift opened up uh, caused by an ancient demon witch named Arilu Vorlesh, and hordes and floods of demons who seek nothing but the destruction of mortal races started pouring through. And this country known as Mendev took up the Holy Crusade to close the World Wound. Uh, you enter during the uh, in between the fourth and fifth crusade. You are the beginners of the fifth crusade to close the world wound. So they have tried four times prior and failed four times prior to close this enormous rift that demons just keep pouring out of. Um, it starts with this huge tragedy and the party coming together to survive and figure out what's going on and getting conscripted into the crusades and being chosen by uh, the goddess Iomide, who's like the holy light crusader avenger goddess or whatever. She's actually responsible for defeating Tar Buffon, the lich king I had mentioned before, um, in at least one way or aspect. Uh, she chooses you as her champions to go and finally close the world wound. You basically become commanders of the military forces, ride on, seize a, a, a city lost to the demons uh, in the last crusade, deal with treachery and betrayal and all kinds of sins because the demons are based around the seven sins and battle the generals of the demon armies. Um, there is 
there's an optional boss fight where you get to fight Baphomet. <laughs> and I'm talking biblical Baphomet. Oh, wow. we, we fucking did it. And we killed that motherfucker. Oh, <laughs> it was such a good fight. Our DM did an amazing mm-hmm. job with that campaign. He He struggled a lot. He almost called it off at one point. It is written very poorly from my understanding on a DM perspective. If you want to DM this, you need to be clear with your players. You reserve the right to uh, nix certain abilities, completely remove them as options, to rewrite things, so on and so forth. Because apparently it needs a little bit of work. But there's an optional part where you get to fight and potentially kill Baphomet or get killed by. And it ends with killing the witch that opened the world wound and closing it. Um, and I don't know if it was actually written in the story or if it was provided as a f- optional final boss, but, um, God, what, uh, basically Discari. you learned that the, yes, you learn that the actual mastermind behind all of the military forces and the demons is the demon Lord known as Discari, which is this huge, like locust monster. Um, and you get to fight and bring him down at the end too. And That's it is just this epic clash of deific beings, and it's oh, it's just so cool. <laughs> like, fuck. If if I could talk for a second, our our party started out as like a sorcerer, a paladin, uh, basically a nurse bender, and a swashbuckler, and we ended up as like the paladin Sethador becoming a fledgling new god of specifically justice and not necessarily good because I am a is very pigeonholed into you must be good and only serve with good things but it correct me if I'm wrong here Sethador was like no justice will be achieved no matter what we need to do yeah so my this is my character yeah. I was the paladin and he he became a fledgling deity and his principle was no one is above Justice. the law and doing what is right. Whatever what is right means in the moment. To include other deities. So he was a paladin that had a conflict of faith in the middle of the campaign and was like, why, why are we all serving Iomide? Because there's a character you meet she is a demon succubus turned good and chosen by a good goddess named Desna. So this paladin who's been taught the ways of Iomide, all demons are bad, they must be destroyed, you must fight for the light, meets this demon who by his oath he is bound to banish or kill, but she's helping. She's so integral in defeating the demon forces pouring from the world wound. And he, he's just like, do I follow my oath? If I don't follow my oath, will I still be a paladin? I don't want to have to do this to her. So he, my character became extremely standoffish to her because he didn't want to get close in the event he had to destroy her because of his oath. But it made him question, is what I was taught really the end-all be-all? Why do gods get to make these decisions? Gods should be beholden to the, like, to the events that are happening in the moment that determine what is good and what is bad, but they don't feel like there's anyone policing them. So he is essentially on the path to become the judge of gods and and deal with them that way. 
that's kind of the whole premise of where he took off to. I don't know. That's what my I went for with my character. I think it turned out really yeah, well. Kyle I think did an did excellent awesome. job. Yeah. Um, that's cool. The kineticist became a champion of, of Saren Ray. Uh, She's um, goddess of redemption. So yeah. it doesn't matter what you did before. You should be at least given one chance to change your ways to come over to doing the right thing, doing the good thing. So you could be a fucking murderer, a serial killer. And if a, if somebody of Saren Ray comes up to you and catches you, they are by oath bound to offer you at least once the opportunity to redeem yourself through service to Saren Ray or yada, yada, yada. And which is an interesting conflict to your character. Yeah. And you can take that as literally or as, wishy-washy as you want you can be like no i am i am working for sarah i am of redemption people deserve more chances or you can be like no everybody gets one when you fuck that one up you're done uh we also had the the phoenix sorceress phoenix blooded sorceress who had a a, a a tainted soul in her phoenix bloodline that she had to purge and then by the time the campaign ends, she's just like this Avatar Phoenix thing, and she just kind of flies off into space. And she's like, I'm going to go figure some stuff out. <laughs> and then there was my character who was enslaved his entire life, had really like decided that all gods sucked because he had just listened his entire life. He had listened to people pray and beg to gods to get out of slavery, and they so many of them didn't it's just like how can gods listen to this many people begging and not care and so he took it upon himself to punish evil as he saw it it didn't matter if you murdered somebody yesterday if he saw you being a decent person today he didn't care if you you know fed the homeless eight days a week but today you you know we're racist piece of shit he doesn't care like he saw you being a piece of shit if it's bad enough he'll just fucking kill you and so he goes through this whole journey of ups and downs where he kind of tries and like realize like as he becomes a, de a deity he realizes like oh shit this is harder than i thought you can't just like once you know everything you have to pick and choose and it comes to the very end where he was he had like a, a budding romance with the succubus the good succubus and she was affecting him and changing him to be a better person but he had made a decision for power to help his friends and he had pledged himself as the herald to the assassin god norgaber and she was like look i'm trying to be good i don't want to fall back into into evil i can't follow you if you're gonna do this and so she left and norgaber gave him a choice uh, when they made the deal, he gave him a coin and he's like, when you want to talk to your dead mom, use this coin. Because that was the, the reason he goes to Mendev is to make a name for himself to find his lost mother. Fake mother, but that's not important. And uh, he finds out he, she's dead. And he's like, I can let you talk to her. Uh, the goddess of the afterlife so, owes me a favor. I'll cash it in for you if you work for me. Dude. And so... At the very end of the campaign, the succubus is like, you, I can't follow you. If you're going to go with Norgaber, you're not going to be doing it with me. And she walks out and 
at the same time that she walks out, the coin appears on his table, his kitchen table, because this happens in his house. It falls on his table. And so basically it's a choice. Does he, like, nail home this, this deal with Norgaber, the assassin god, and be evil, be his herald, be the, the slayer of slavers? Or does he go after Rushli? And he picks up the coin, he talks to his mom, and he tells her everything he's done, and... For reference, that moment was so soul-crushing for me as a player and a character, because this whole campaign, like, Matt's character and my character developed this, like, brother bond, mm-hmm. basically. And and Seth's, Seth's character flaws were he lost a bunch of people in a military action before the start of the campaign, and he was the only survivor. So he has this huge crippling thing about, I can't let the people around me die. Even if it means I die, they can't die. So there was numerous times where I would just, I'd be like barely alive, couple HP, because I was taking damage from Matt's character, trying to be the guardian brother of him and trying to steer him on the right path. And Matt's character at the end just falls to Norgaber. And I'm just like, oh, no! And and my... My reasoning for it, I think it's it's such a bittersweet ending, but I think it's it's it feels like it was the ending that was meant to happen. Is like he spends his whole time looking for his mom, and then when Arushale leaves, that's the succubus. He's like all he wants to do more than anything is just talk to his mom again, and he's it's like it's finally there, it's right there, he can do it, and he takes the easy thing. He's like I want to talk to my mom, and uh, it cements his fate. As honestly, we could do a whole podcast on our stories from Rapid yeah of the righteous. <laughs> I just I, That's pretty cool, yeah. because because that campaign just happened, and because it's like really a showcase of of the lengths you can go to with a character and everything. I wanted to talk about all our characters. I know we didn't talk about the kinesis and the, and the sorcerers much, but it's because they're they're not here, and it's kind of weird to just like semi talk <laughs> for their characters. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think Wrath is always going to have a special spot in in my heart because it's a campaign I've always I always really wanted to play, but I didn't want to DM because I wanted to play my original character that I've had for since I was like a preteen in this campaign because it was all about holy righteous crusade blah 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 and he's always been a paladin and I'm like I love the idea of this campaign I don't want to be the run to run it because I really want to play in it. And and when we finally got around to playing in it, everyone that was involved had played with each other before. We had personalities that meshed and everyone was comfortable with role playing. This was a campaign where role playing took finally took spotlight over mechanical like playing the game, which I've been I was waiting for for a long time because I'll. Most of the campaigns that we'd played up until now, there was always a heavy chunk of it of like, well, mechanically, how do I do this? Or let's get to the next fight or let's do the dungeon. This was like, I'm sorry, DM, we are not progressing in this session because we have people we want to talk to and we want to play our characters and be our characters. And it, oh, it was so nice. It was really cool. There were a number of times. He he let us do it. There were a number of times where we would finish a big mission and then the next session or two would just be like, we would go down the list of PCs and be like, "All right, I'm I'm Matt. I'm fucking Zagreus, the fledgling swashbuckler. I want to go talk to that dude that made my gun. I want to go talk to 
Arushule. I want to go snarkily report into the queen and not treat her like a queen. <laughs> you should be like, hey, queen, what's up? What's up? Uh, we did the thing, you know, pure demons. Got any rewards or, uh, you know, any shiny bits and bobs where stuff is expensive. Yeah, it was it was really cool. We we got to actually be our characters, which is what role playing is. Yeah. About. Yeah, that is that is really cool. Um, unfortunately, we're getting to our, our hour mark here and there's still there's about 10 left, five to six of which I'm going to kind of hand wave. So we've got maybe part of a session left and then we can just talk general like plot points. Maybe I can talk about my homebrew campaign at the end. So we've got like 40 minutes of content left, 40 to 50. So we may want to wrap this one up here and then and then close it home with the third episode. That sounds good. So one thing I want to go back to mm-hmm. is with the Kingmaker. Oh man, all and, the way back. Yeah. Um, which is funny because the pirate one sounds fun, but Kingmaker is just like so up my alley for creating things and stuff like that. <laughs> so that sounds the most fun to me. But my thought was that would be cool. And I don't know if this is possible because, you know, I'm completely new to all of this. But depending on how fast the time skips can be, is that your characters become the rulers of said kingdom, but then their children become the new players. And you're technically playing two sides. So like if you want your character to become a political leader, their kids become the player that goes and fights, if that makes sense. It's an interesting premise. The time skips aren't extreme enough to account for the growth of a child. You would have to start the campaign. But it's interesting. You'd have to start the campaign with characters that all had kids. You'd have to like sit gotcha. down and with and the demon would have to be like, all right, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna go through book one. All your characters have kids that are of adventuring age. Book one, you're gonna be the parents. Set up the kingdom. The parents are gonna need to rule the kingdom, and the kids are gonna take over the adventuring. The kids will start at the level that the parents left off as at the end of book two. I think that's how you'd have to yeah. do that. Which would be an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Another another spin on that is if someone didn't want to have a kid and like do two characters like that, then you could have a mix between kids and older. Yeah, no, if one of the characters like the didn't the, want to rule. Like, they help yeah. guide the kids. That's a really interesting idea, TJ. It would be even more yeah. interesting is if some added little flufferdoodles. Uh, nobody plays their own kid. You all play different uh, characters' uh, kids. <laughs> then you can interact with your cool. parents. <laughs> that would actually be really there cool. There you go. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, I like that. So that was just my thought when you were describing it. I'm like, man, that'd be a cool roundabout way, but I don't know. If yeah, I mean, it's, it would definitely be possible. You'd have to talk with the players prior to running the game. But and that, interesting. that would have to be like a DM. Like, he'd have to... That would put more on the DM. Eh. Uh, not too much. If the players are RPing both the the adult and the youth, then the DM really just needs to be prepared for like knowing different features and functions of more characters. It's more on the players to know how to run their characters, so it wouldn't be too terrible. Cool. That's all I really have. I think it cool. would. I wasn't sure how much time that was going to be. It would proportionally <laughs> put more on each player than it would more on the dm it'd probably a little bit more on everybody but the players would have to run two people they'd have to have their fully leveled 
adventuring character and they'd have to have their guy in the kingdom doing all the shit and these things could be happening concurrently Alrighty. Well, with that, let's wrap this one up, guys, and we'll see everyone on Galarian again at least one more time, uh, and I'll be sure to burn through the kind of general APs uh, just to, to prime everyone for the next one. There's... There's, like, two that I'll probably get a little bit dug into, but the rest of them, it's just gonna be, this is what this is about, this is how it affects the world, done. Which um, Which two? Uh, Giant Slayer and Hell's Rebels are coming. Uh, which I ran Hell's Rebels and we both played in Giant Slayer, so we'll probably spend some time on those. But the rest of them I have either only read, uh, I don't want to get too far into of what I know because somebody is playing in it, so on and so forth. Um, uh, or I just don't know very much about. So. Giant Slayer is where my, my witch was, TJ. Gotcha. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, this has been the Wax Show. I was your host this time, and I believe I will be next time, and then it'll be back to our regularly scheduled hosting. Uh, my <laughs> name is Dan. Thanks for listening to my rambling. I'm Matt. And I'm TJ. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful day. Bye.